independent media is more important than ever. We don't have a corporate network behind us, and we also don't have big green foundation grants. So we really do need you, and we are actively calling in your direct support so that we can continue exploring many of these topics and perspectives, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you're enjoying our show, please make sure you're subscribed and join us on Patreon today, starting at a tip of just $3 at patreon.com slash green dreamer. Every little bit helps and really adds up. And that is the power in community. So thank you so much for however you're able to support our work. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. The managerial tactics of tree planting do not love the landscape. They have only directives and no understanding. You can't have understanding when your mandate is to plant a million trees. You're just checking boxes. There's doesn't matter whether they're tree units or other kind of units, the, the likelihood is very low that there's care taken between systems or species or objects. Today we're speaking with Rosetta S. Elkin, the Principal of Practice Landscape, Academic Director of Pratt Institute's School of Architecture Masters in Landscape Architecture Program, and an Associate of the Arnold Arboretum at Harvard University. Rosetta's work considers living environments with a particular focus on plant life and climate change. Rosetta teaches planting design, field work, and seminars that advance a theory of plant life between ecology and horticulture. She is author and co-author of books, articles, book chapters, and monographs, including Plant Life, The Entangled Politics of Afforestation, How Afforestation Reveals the Often Concealed Politics Between Human and Plants. I think anyone who's really worked with plants, who's had to take care of plants or has a garden or farms or is in some way kind of daily connected with the living plant as opposed to the resource plant, like as it comes out as an object, whether it's in our foodstuffs or in our clothing or whatnot, where you sort of forget that there's this living organism behind it. I think anyone who who has had their hands in the soil and worked with plants probably has a sensitivity that I share. And so I, I would say that's where it started. It started with gardening. It started with farming. It started with growing my own plants, which is truly what drew me into landscape architecture as a field. Ultimately, however, the field took me quite far away from my love of plants. And so I've spent the sort of second half of my career trying to turn it back, (laughs) if you will. And I find that most of my students, I mean, I teach also, and most of my students also enter into the design professions that I'm a part of because they do, they do have a, a kinship with plant life but it's very rarely taught in that way. It's taught, again, in this kind of severe environmental context or at a distance, like very, you know, huge biomes or the community concept where you get Latin binomials and they're grouped together and they're supposed to stay together on the sheet and in real life and you kind of move on. And that, I think that's a pity. I think that's an overlooked opportunity. Mm, thank you for this introduction. And if we just ask the general public, 
What are your views on tree planting projects or planting more trees without offering any additional context? I think most people would respond positively and see them as acts of doing good for the land and the planet. But of course, anything painted with such a broad stroke like that is worth unpacking. So in your book, which highlights and critiques various afforestation projects, you explore how the complicated ties and relations made in the human world, namely between constructing a scientific truth, generating a resource, and misleading public understanding are physically manifest in the landscape, end quote. Can you expand on the scientific truth that was constructed and how it's been used to mislead the public into seeing tree planting projects, no matter the context, to be good for the planet? Yeah, well, when you plant a tree, you're actually planting another living organism. So the word planting, I mean, it's it's kind of simple in a way, and in, in other respects, it engages a relationship, right? I start the book as you might remember with a very simple sentence that says, humans are a planting species. No other species plants quite like we do. There are many, many plants that grow spontaneously and completely without human accord. And then there are plants that that we feel the need to stick in the ground, if I could put it that way. So once you decide to stick a plant in the ground, to take it out of where it has been growing and put it somewhere else, You establish a relationship because that plant didn't decide to be there. You decided to put it there. And so it might thrive. It might even like where you put it, but you have to respect that relationship, right? It's, it's a powerful relationship because you're in charge in, in many ways. Plants do move, but they aren't mobile. So once you've, you've stuck that plant in the ground, there's some responsibility to go back and check on it, right? Unfortunately, some of the larger tree planting projects around the world have no sort of post-planting reconnaissance or any kind of rigorous plans to go back and check on any of the projects. So there is no relationship. They're, They're planting trees, but they're not engaging relations. They being these projects that are usually backed by scientific fact for a, a need, uh, quote, on, I'm using my hands right now, quote, unquote, a need to re-green or offset some sort of carbon mandate, other sort of destructive topics like major drought or famine, they're quelled by this, this desire to plant. And when those desires are, are met with certain global mandates, Tree planting can scale up very quickly to the hundreds of thousands, the millions, and even we know of the billion tree projects, tree planting projects. So if I can link all of that to your first question, anyone who's planted a tree knows that there is certain requirements of water, light, a care for other creatures that might want to feed on that plant, and and a whole host of questions like who is planting the tree and why and what resource is it taking and what species are you using? And these very simple questions and very simple relations are typically left out of scientific mandates that tell governmental and non-governmental agencies where planting, quote unquote, again, must unfold as if it's some kind of critical contribution that one can't live without, without getting to the deeper cause of landscape change or interpreting adaptation or other possibilities. So I feel like it's so simple in a way I could just say, I mean, but I wrote this whole book and, and actually it all boils down to just a few words, which is we should be growing trees and we should get rid of this language of planting trees. Because as soon as you say, yes, I planted 100 trees, the question really ought to be, but how many grew? How many thrived? How many lived? And the likelihood of you having a relationship with 100 trees is pretty low. Mm. So I'd rather see communities growing trees. And I'd, I'd like to see the rhetoric change as well so we can all talk about fewer trees that thrive and, and grow. Yeah, so it's not about planting trees, 
It's about growing trees, that really relational aspect. So it's not just checking things off of lists, like we've accomplished this, but it's really about that long-term realization that these are living beings who need ongoing care and tending to ensure that they can thrive and become synergistic parts of their communities where they are. And a key point that you've made is that afforestation is often viewed as being politically neutral, something that people on all sides can unite and get behind in the name of the health of our planet. Of course, our conversation will reveal that afforestation ought to be viewed as political, something that a lot of indigenous and local communities around the globe already know and have experienced firsthand. But I wonder if you could share a little history, particularly about the early state-funded afforestation programs in the United States with federal mandates to plant Mm. trees in the Great Plains. How does this illustrate a form of shallow environmentalism with no relationship or knowledge of place? Yeah, it's so multifaceted and so layered, right? I mean, we're a product of our times when the westward expansion in the United States was confronting treelessness, which is what I, what I tried to call it, basically moving west and finding fewer and fewer trees from the very arborized east coast. It was at first met with a kind of joy, right, that you, one didn't need to clear land to farm or to settle but embedded in that whole rubric is the fact that settler societies have a tendency to superimpose their their ways on existing contexts, on local contexts. And in the case of westward expansion in the United States, it was really incentivized, as we know from early American history. And that was exaggerated by certain policies like the Timber Culture Act, right? So I talk a lot about the Timber Culture Act in particular because it, it really mobilized these takings. These takings I'm talking about is basically the, the great land grab, pushing any other kind of life besides the one incentivized by early federal and regulatory agencies to Europeanize and civilize the so-called West, which of course was only the West to the settler colonialists. So Trees became a form of management, you know, a form of care in in their case where they they thought that bringing in new new plants and new agriculture, new new foodstuffs to those contexts would be a way to claim. That's what the Timber Culture Act really did is it is it formalized the claims if you planted if a family or or a settler group planted a certain number of trees they could send that claim to Washington and in return they would own the land land that was you know never under those those kinds of declarative terms prior to federal conservation mandates new deal policies exaggerated that by the 30s and i think it's actually maybe a nice time to interject a little we didn't do it at the beginning but i really deal with afforestation in in this research and it's not reforestation afforestation is the deliberate planting of trees in otherwise treeless environments so like texas to the canadian border straight up the 100th meridian this is a very sparsely treed environment and so rather than enjoying that the tall grass prairie for the most part um, the short grass prairie, the wetlands, the 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 incredible biomes of such a, a large expanse. The sort of the the mentality that if there aren't trees here, then then somehow we need to plant them. That's something that people didn't question. Any any people really? I'm I'm, I'm making sweeping remarks here, but that's essentially a misunderstanding of drylands, right? Of dry places, of not fully grasping the dryland landscape ecology and dynamics and the complexities of the plants that thrive there, which are for the most part living underground, unlike trees, which live a great deal of their life above ground. So I decided to cover afforestation because it is extreme, but it still sheds light on other other projects that are about major tree planting. However, if you put a tree, a little baby tree in a hole in a humid environment, it's probably going to take. You're giving it just what it needs. You put a little tree in a hole in a sub-Sahara or in Western Mongolia or in Nebraska, 
and it's not going to thrive without you. It might thrive with you. It might thrive with others, but it's unlikely to thrive on its own. It just simply doesn't have the rich inputs that woody tree life require, which is why they aren't there in the first place on an adaptation level. So context matters. (laughs) And I think that that starts to at least scratch the surface of your question, but yeah, it's it's multi-layered and I don't want to just pin it on this early American example I use because it it sets the tone for sure because it's historically the oldest example, but in many ways it's the most careful example or, or case study that I, I used because of some of the, the folks that were involved in it. So, of course, context is always key. And there are certain tree species that do well in particular drier climates and certain ones that also require wetter climates. So there's also nuance in the whole field of all the different species of trees that there are as well. And this conversation is really timely because I've been sitting with the question of why people typically celebrate turning desert ecosystems into lush forests and not arable land into deserts. And what does this reveal about how we place value differently on different types of ecosystems? And the point isn't to justify desertification, of course, but to question why why we don't see the conversion of deserts and drylands, which were historically deserts and drylands, into greener terrains as a sort of loss of an ecosystem which supported a unique biodiversity of life that needed and contributed to that type of a landscape. As you share, by definition, dry lands are the context of afforestation and attest to the scale of the quote-unquote problem because they occupy 41.3% of the total planetary land surface. Mm-hmm. It is simply too much to accept that such a large portion of the planet is less than hospitable to humans, end quote. And you kind of touched on this already, but to these points, I would love to hear more about your invitation to love dry lands as they are and what it means that afforestation typically doesn't take into consideration the pre-existing relationships above and below ground in the dry lands that they typically disrupt and transform. Mm. I'm glad you mentioned love. It's a good word to say out loud sometimes. Mm. The managerial tactics of tree planting do not love the landscape. Mm. They have only directives and no understanding. You can't have understanding when your mandate is to plant a million trees. You're just checking boxes. There's, it doesn't matter whether they're tree units or other kind of units. The, the likelihood is very low that there's care taken between systems or species or objects. And that's not just theoretical, that's super practical. You just can't. If like one person can't care for a million anything. I mean, millions of things like microorganisms care for us, you know, but it's very hard for, for our individual to have that much generosity and that much time, frankly. We're just inadequate. So I I do think it comes down to human exceptionalism. I write a little bit about that, but I'm I'm trying to also in the same vein that you're curious about this flipping of, of biomes. I'm I'm curious about our human exceptionalism, especially in this time. Deserts are hard to densify and hard to urbanize and hard on humans. I mean, I use the word hard three times there, just replace it with anything you want at, at, at a basic level. We don't thrive in drylands as Homo sapiens. We can tolerate them, but we can't multiply at the same rate or speed as we can in humid biomes. And so it's an affront, right? It's an affront to our adaptability and our exceptionalism, our, our, our theory of the human as at the top of Aristotle's ladder. And we aren't. We are, we are totally interdependent. We don't see nature as apart from us. We are in nature as a co-production. We're, we're part of it. But it's, it's hard for a lot of people to come around to that because it can be disappointing you know, or it can be humbling. But I think that's at the root and the heart of the fear of the desert. It's a fear of survival. And it's not even always true deserts. It's often very virtuous places like grasslands. So, you know, that other question is like, well, why put, why plant trees in grasslands? Why try so hard to make a forest in a grassland? Sort of, that's a very interesting also because it's a little more subtle than 
than what you're talking about. But it's it does boil down to a respect for trees over all of plant life. Right. And that's the same as like the human exceptionalism. We have a bit of a tree exceptionalism. Right. I, I don't I don't know why. I mean, I would I would love to know why, but maybe I'm as curious as, as you are to, to unpack that. This is an attempt for sure. And it's something that I'm I continue to to write about, you know, why we want cultivated seed and not wild seed. Like one of the things I say in the in the end, in the in the sort of conclusion is that the world is already fully planted. Right? We we don't actually have to be a planting species if we learn to live with the plants that are all around us, including in dry land biomes. The soils are full of dormant seed. You know that if you just pull up a paver and wait, right? Whether it blows in or it emerges from below, plants will take over. And so why do we move that dormancy and that life in the soil out of the way and bring in another plant, right? It's for beauty, it's for health, it's for religious, ritual, spirituality, it's for love, it's for care, curiosity, food. There's there's a lot of reasons, but tree planting seems to be a very empty reason, right? It's it's a very bureaucratic reason. It's it's so you can report back the mandate that it that it was planted, which is essentially promoting economic development and not human life. Right. And there's so many layers to this. And I want to go into that sort of offsetting piece in a little, but off the top of my head, just I think about how marketing a project of like planting a million trees sounds a lot more attention grabbing than say, a project that is supporting like five trees to really grow big and thrive for the rest of their their lives. So Mm. there's sort of that mindset shift for people in terms of what is it that drives fundraising? What is it that drives donations? So we also have to be thinking about that as people who are on the donating end, like people who are supporting these different types of projects out there asking for people's support. And then also just, I guess, an ecosystem with a lot of trees in the capitalistic system that we have, that can be viewed as a lot more profitable, a lot more quote unquote productive because trees can be cut down as quote unquote resources, whereas a desert, there's not much for the taking for the economy there. And then of course, like corporate privatization and control over patented seeds, as opposed to the seeds that already exist everywhere that are not under the control of particular people or entities. So just lots of things that came up and maybe more of these themes will come out as we speak. But this idea of change and how we perceive anthropogenic change is also one that I've been really thinking about as well, because anthropogenic change isn't all the same. Mm -hmm. Just like how viewing climate change as anthropogenic has been contested because not all humans contributed to the same forms of change leading to ecological breakdown. So I want to dive deeper into this mm-hmm. as well, because here we're talking about an invitation to appreciate and support drylands as they are and to question transforming them through afforestation, which pressures and disrupts the pre-existing relationships there. And I know that maybe initially those climates and terrains wouldn't have been hospitable to supporting the long-term growth of the trees, but we also know that every being contributes to changes in the landscapes as well over time. And so, for example, the new presence of more greenery also changes the water cycle there and might draw in more moisture to then better enable their future survival. And besides this, I was also listening to Native scholar Lila June give a TED Talk in part sharing about how Native Americans augmented grasslands through intentional burning in order to expand habitat for buffalo, which their life and foodways depended on. Although by default, expanding grasslands also meant the suppression of more arborized terrains that were creeping in with biodiversities in their own right. And we also know that beavers expand wetlands with how they reconfigure logs in their waterways. And a lot of tree species are allelopathic, meaning they change the chemistry around them to make them less hospitable for certain other species. And 
giving more room for the ones that they maybe are more directly interdependent and reliant on. So I guess I've been, <laughs> what I've been curious about is undoing the binary of anthropocentrism and ecocentrism because humans, like all other beings, have a set of relationships that we need in order to thrive. And people who are deeply rooted in place, not talking about those who've lost our sense of interdependence and entanglement, but rooted peoples, like all other beings, will do what we need in order to augment our own entang more directly entangled webs of life, which are going to be what, what will make life more hospitable to said human communities and their more than human communities as well. So I would be just interested in hearing what this all sparks within you and ask, is the preservation of existing relationships in the exact earth and land configurations that they exist in right now, what we should view as conservation work that's what's considered healthy for the planet. But then this current configuration, even before climate change and mass extinction, has been the result of rooted peoples co-transforming their landscapes with other beings in their networks. And then otherwise, if non-change isn't the goal, is there like a degree of change and human contributed change that could be viewed as regenerative? Just lots of questions, not necessarily any right answers, but I'm curious to hear what you've thought through here. I love, I, it's fun to talk to you because there's a lot going on in every question. I mean, there's like five questions in your question and I guess I'm picking up on what you call rootedness and also what you just said, which was non-change. I mean, I don't think indigenous practices at all were at all about non-change. I mean, in fact, they were extremely changeable and, and, you know, setting fire to, to a grassland is a way to keep it tree free and therefore easier to hunt, right? You could see your hunt. And so having these large pastures that were cleared to, to drive some ungulates into, so it was easier to hunt. I mean, that's, that's design, right? But it's designed with the logic of the biome and not against it. Mm. And there's a, a kind of understanding there that I think you're calling rooted. I call it I talk a bit, little bit about landlessness in the book. And I also, I'm inspired by Aldo Leopold's use of it, but also Vine Deloria Jr. He says really, and I'm going to use the word Indian because it's how he, it's in the quote, but he says, you know, that the real authority of indigenous dispossession is in the making of Indian landlessness. That's how he put it. And so the making of landlessness is actually the tactic. So when you take some, when you take not just the physical land away, as if you put a, a, a fence around it and you, you know, you plant trees, you appeal to the federal government, you say, okay, this is mine now. But it's actually in breaking the relations that a people have to their land. If you are landful, right? If I can, if I can say landful, meaning, you know, how to eat, how to thrive, how to find joy, how to recreate, and really how to live, even religiously, with the land in partnership. And so that, of course, includes plants. It includes all living organisms. And that's a little bit what I was trying to say about nature as a co-production. I think many indigenous cultures around the world understand their role as part of nature and not outside it. And really that making of landlessness is, is to break the spirit of a whole people who, who consider the land as kin and everything on it and everything in it. So the non-change and the rooted and the landlessness, it's like, it's, it's all together sort of one dialogue and, we can't kind of plant our way out of it. You know, these ideas that like, oh, well, you know, we, we've done too, too much harm to this one area or there's destruction here or strife. Let's plant it with trees and that will offset our guilt, our past, our history. It's, it's just too, it's, it's too much of a one-liner, right? There's, there's no way there isn't a second agenda behind that. And it masks too much not to pull back the curtain, so to speak. So, I mean, I'm with you. I'm, I, I like what you're saying. And it's one of the reasons I, I mean, I, I turn to plants because they, 
connect us. They are, we are an entirely plant dependent species. There is no human, there's no, you know, there's no dinosaur before the plants condition the planet for creatures to evolve. There's, there's no human as common ancestors. There's no Darwin to prove common ancestors. So the respect for plant life has been, has been lost in the making of landlessness. So I think we have to call it out when that respect is so overtly broken, like in a billion tree program. And, and that's, that, I guess that's where I start. That's where I start in hoping to have a more collaborative practice between species. Yeah, definitely calls for a lot more humility on our end as we work with and care for plants who mm. came and evolved long before we did. You mentioned earlier about how drylands are less hospitable to human population growth. And I think I have a yes and inquiry here. Maybe this also <sighs> puts into question what hospitable means and refers to. But I think about how indigenous and land-based peoples around the world and their cultures emerge from and are interwoven in the diverse landscapes across the globe, from wetlands to drylands to forests to coastal regions and so on. So perhaps this vision of afforestation and greening the planet as the definition of environmentalism isn't so much about making places more hospitable to humans, but making them more familiar to particular groups and cultures of humans who mm. never really established nor cultivated relationships with other types of landscapes that require a whole different way of living, eating, practice of community, and relating to each other. Because I can imagine land-based and indigenous peoples whose life and cultures and foodways depend on, say, prairies and grasslands or arctic tundras and so forth, to not necessarily see greening their landscapes through afforestation or tree planting as making them more hospitable, based on the unique place-based sets of knowledges that their peoples have accumulated and passed down. Well, you just you just said what I couldn't write. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more, and I'm so glad you said it, Kamea, because yeah, tree planting is is another just another colonial practice, mm. right? You just said that greening an area that is inhospitable is making it comfortable or more hospitable to a certain group of people and unfamiliar to another group. So take the African project to, to green a wall from Jakarta to Djibouti. Why? Why do we need that project? I mean, I, I, I just, just chapters on it in my book, but really at, at the end of the day, it's, it, it's the sub-Sahel. Wouldn't it be odd? Wouldn't it be a very extreme form of geoengineering if our sub-Sahel was green? Who does it help? Who do, whose interests are, are involved? This is environmental, you know, sort of environmental history and political eco ecology and colonialism and all <laughs> at once in a tree planting project. Mm -hmm. and, no, and, and it's getting UN awards for nature-based solutions. It seems odd to me, so I'm happy that you agree, or it sounds like you agree that it, it's sort of curious, isn't it? Yeah. Because you're claiming it when you do that. You're, you're, you're claiming it as something that it isn't, which means that you're ex you, one, would then express that a greener environment would be better. Better than what? Better than how people are already living there? I mean, the assumption that drylands are empty, it's the same cue as assuming that the 100th Meridian was empty when indigenous Americans lived. There was a, a, this, this assumption that, it's, that there's nothing going on there. And so it can be filled. It can also be filled with solar panels, by the way. It can be filled with whatever Western mentalities believe need to be like superimposed in these empty places. Empty, I'm putting my hands in little quotes. They're not empty. They're neither empty of human life, nor plant life, nor creature life. They're so rich, diverse, and full. In fact, the scholar Diana K. Davis, it's important to put that K in there because there are also Diana Davises. She's a geographer, though. She wrote this book called Resurrecting the Granary of Rome. And she's written about arid lands more broadly. And 
if anyone's interested in in that who's listening, I just highly recommend you pick up her book. I, I I've cited her many times. I'm inspired by her work, but she she has traced a lot of that to sort of early Rome, a lot of the Sub-Sahel I'm speaking of, in particular the settlement of the Sub-Sahel to the Roman invasions and the setting up of a kind of Western aesthetic there. So, you know, history, power, knowledge, <laughs> it yeah. all comes it all comes out in those books that she's written. It's, re- it's really quite inspiring. So it's it's the same sort of rehearsed practice. It's just not colonial settlement moving west. It's it's European invasion moving into Africa. Right. And then the practices just endure. They seem to endure. Yeah. And you mentioned some things that the United Nation has been greenlighting. I recently wrote a piece on diversifying anthropocentrisms. Mm. And I remember reading something from the UN where they made the statement that drylands are associated with economic poverty and food insecurity, kind of implying that drylands are the problem. And when I read that, I I was more curious to challenge a lot of the other structural things that have been implemented that have prevented open migration and the commons and forced maybe the same sorts of small plot intensive farming that maybe works in other types of terrains, but does not work in drylands because maybe these are places that historically have required communities to be able to openly migrate with more freedom and, of course, putting into question things like land privatization, land ownership, borders, and, of course, power dynamics and access and a whole host of other issues that I see as being the compounding factors and not dry lands in and of itself as being what it is that causes food insecurity. I don't know if you've thought through this area as well and have anything to add. Well, it sounds like you've th- thought through it a lot. I'd love to know more and I'd love a link to your paper. But the UN and the UNCCD in particular, you know, really developed only in the mid 20th century, let's not forget. And that was after centuries of, of abuse, of abuse of primarily drylands. And, and of course, not, not only, but I think a lot of us living in humid biomes or boreal forests, like, like I am anyways, you forget that over 40% of the planet is considered a dryland biome. It's, it's easy to think of them as small by comparison to how much humidity there is. So the UN and especially the UNCCD, I go into the history a little bit in the book, but it's it's hinged on the term desertification and the term desertification, the United Nations Conference for Desertification, the UNCCD, it really is set up to solve the dryland problem as if drylands were a problem rather than a biome. And of course, they link it to health issues and the interdependence between human health and access to resources. But really, most of the time, human health is suffering in drylands because of abuses from non-dryland environment and populations. So the term desertification is in itself quite political. I prefer the term drought. It's, it's very simple. You're either in a drought-stricken or, or drought-vulnerable environment. You're either waiting for drought or just coming out of drought. Um, indigenous uh, Americans in Nebraska, broadly, not that it was called Nebraska, used to say that drought was like a whale that would rise up and you didn't know where it would take a breath, but it would pass. And so there were ways of understanding that drought came in, but drought also left and you wanted to have enough foodstuffs and you would expect it, but it, it kind of moved and it, it almost moved underground. Like the, the entire grassland biome was an organism like an ocean and drought moved through it. Now drought is mostly created by overproduction, overconsumption, overgrazing, overpopulation, everything, every time we top it, every time it goes over. And it's no longer really perceived as a natural process of, of a biome the same way a rainstorm might be. 
so it's problematized. And if it's a problem, then it needs a solution. Desertification is a term that was coined by a French forester in 1949. Uh, his name was André Aubreville, and he used it to describe the humid biome. He was working in Côte d'Ivoire, which is humid, not dry, in our in our generalized terms here. Uh, so it's a rainforest. And he, he used the term to describe what would happen if slash and burn forestry was repeated over and over, over a decade or, or two decades or some years. And what would happen is in this very humid biome, the ground would, what he said in French, desertify, which would make it less profitable to, for the foresters because if you slash and burn and slash and burn and you keep doing that, then you have an endless and easy supply to extract from. But if you couldn't keep extracting, then then you have to change tactics. But the French authorities were very, um, yeah, very, very smart, I suppose. They engineered their way out of that by using the term to refer to deserts. And so by expressing dry land or drought prone areas as desertified, they made a call for fixing it by planting trees, mm -hmm. which allowed them to just grab more terrain, more area, and territorialize further. They didn't have interest in deserts before because as foresters, they didn't know how to have interest in deserts before, but they just, they started moving north and they started moving west and they started planting trees as a way to invest in, in the future under the rubric of desertification. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with that history. It's just part of our history as a human species. What we might want to do is is learn where the word desertification comes from and when it should be used and when it is ill-used, at least to move forward, right? At least to move forward into a more hopeful, more informed, more generous future that I think we all want. But we got to shake some of these, you know, some of these keywords that are problematic. Yeah. And words that so many have accepted and never question. So this is really important. And this conversation just really hits deep for me because in the last year, I, I've been really caught to see the climate crisis as a symptom of our relational crisis, which has been the breakdown of place-based relationships and communities. Because from my observation, and I'm sure many others as well, the more severed those relationships are and the more disassociated human communities and their impositions are from place, then the more water, energy, resource intensive it becomes just to maintain that community's various systems, be it food, infrastructure, energy, and so on. So your mm -hmm. invitations to focus on the relational aspect rather than, for example, to reduce our ecological crises into decontextualized mathematical equations really resonates for me. And because the climate crisis has been so heavily centered on carbon emissions and sequestration, tree planting and greening drylands in general often only receive nods of approval and cheers of celebration. I remember in an interview from a while ago on soil carbon sequestration, I had asked my guest about her views on projects of afforestation in China in places where desert ecosystems with biodiversities of their own right are being turned into lush, wetter green landscapes. And her take on it back then anyway was that given the disproportionate levels of deforestation and land conversion still going on in the world, any form of greening and enriching soils and the land ought to be viewed positively. So I think I know the answer, but I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this sort of offsetting way of looking at afforestation and how you've thought through this with the lens of climate change or how you've challenged the idea of seeing them as wins purely because they technically in the big picture will draw down more carbon compared to a desert ecosystem. And climate change seems to be the top issue that most people who are plugged into these conversations are really concerned about. Well, it's, it's true. We should all do what we can with the land under our feet. I, I take issue with trying to solve deforestation with afforestation. I mm -hmm. think we should be very mindful that we we need to stop deforestation in its tracks. 
just in the Amazon alone, I, I tried to contextualize it for my students the other day, and I figured out that an approximate, because they're they in New York, so they understand the size of Central Park. There's a kind of like, oh, okay, Central Park. So it's something like 500 Central Parks a day that we're losing in the Amazon. Wow. It, it hurts your head. So why are we, why are we fighting deforestation with planting little trees in drylands? It's not a one-to-one relationship. We've got to stop that abuse of the planet and of mature, deeply rooted and engaged biomes that welcome a host of life and understand the environmental impact of letting that go for our future, for our our children, for their children. I mean, <laughs> what kind of ancestor do you want to be, right? I mean, we're the ancestors that let that go. So I, I'd rather think of carbon offsetting as like, I mean, it's just, I, it, it, it's, it's not offsetting. We need a better word for it, but it's basically outsourcing. It's like, okay, I did something over here and I'll make up for it all the way over there, right? You're, you're compensating for a loss in one area by trying to make a gain in a totally other area of the world. of mm-hmm. culture. And deflection too. Right. So yeah, carbon deflection, yeah. call it something more that accurate. it actually is. It's much more accurate. And, you know, it's like saying, well, I'm going to rip up my backyard and concretize it, but I'm going to buy three trees for my neighbor. It's like, really? <laughs> that doesn't, that's not an equation. Like nobody would buy that, right? Nobody's, nobody's into that. And they know that ripping up your whole green space for three young trees is, is not going to do it. And that all of a sudden, because you concretized your backyard, the bunnies will go somewhere else. The turkeys will go somewhere else and the birds will go somewhere else and all the critters will go somewhere else. And so, and they're not all going to go to those three trees that you convinced your, your neighbor, you, you could offset your footprint with. So the, the repercussions are so vast and so wide and, I don't know why we're aiming for zero or what a carbon assessment really means or like these projects that, that, that really, they, they show data with so much confidence and it, it's just, it seems very outsized to the issue of environmental justice, really. So I know having worked on land restoration projects, how hard it is to restore land and how many years it takes, and that often it looks like a restoration project, but it doesn't function like one. So right away, it will look like a salt marsh, but it won't function like a salt marsh for like 50 years. Mm -hmm. So restoration isn't a hit and run kind of design typology. It's reestablishing relationships between organisms that don't currently have a relationship, and relationships take time which is the time that we don't have in deforestation. You're, you're taking down time when you're taking down the Amazon. Yeah, I mean, it's just very reductive to fixate on the chemistry of climate change. And the analogy I've used before is like, they're kind of like the symptoms of the deeper relational crisis and the deeper stresses of mm. the problem. So for example, our cortisol levels typically show for example, how stressed we might be. But there are ways to lower our cortisol levels without doing anything about alleviating the source of that stress. So simply lowering emissions or lowering or sequestering carbon is way too reductive. And we really have to dig deeper to, I I believe, go to the relational aspect for it, which is what gets reflected Mm. in the symptom of this imbalance in, in atmospheric carbon. And before we start to close off, I want to go into your more recent work a little, looking at retreats, which also calls for a deeper understanding of and focus on healing relationships. As you write, retreat is a catalyst because it unsettles and thus begins a process of recovering broken relations, amending connections. To write about retreat is to defend the discomfort it inevitably raises, to use it to heal our relationship with other species and the lands, waters, and soils that sustain us, end quote. As an example, you critique the post-Sandy hurricane and post-Superstorm responses and 
campaigns and plans to build back better and to increase budgets going towards resilience planning, which at the surface sounds good as well. But what troubles did you take with this idea of build back better and its conceptions of resilience planning, kind of reflecting rigidity and non-change and a refusal to listen to the land? And what did you mean with your interest to not build back, but instead to cede, unsettle and to retreat as a way of actually renewing our relationships to place? Mm, it's nice to talk about retreat right after talking about plant life. That's <laughs> unexpected and totally welcome. Retreat is respect for the land that's left behind. And I think that's very important in relation to relocation, which some of your listeners might think, oh, well, relocation, retreat, that's kind of the same thing. I think it's really not the same thing. And that's one of the reasons I, I called the book Landscapes of Retreat, because Relocation is object oriented. You can relocate a church, but you can't relocate a congregation. A congregation has to come together and decide to retreat. Otherwise, you treat human communities like objects when you just say, well, you can just pick up and move over here, right? And, and so communities that decide to retreat on their own, without help from the government, without major kind of regulatory planning, don't get a lot of press because there's no, well, there's always friction, but the friction isn't, isn't as overt because they're, they go through a process where they recognize vulnerability in the land that they're living with, whether it's through a storm or earthquake or tsunami. And then they decide, let's build elsewhere out of respect for what just happened here. Rather than let's push back the risk and, and re-pour our foundations right here. I, I guess that's, that's a kind of simplistic way of trying to unpack it for, for your listeners, but it really did come out of the post-Sandy planning because to talk about retreat at that time was extremely unpopular and taboo even, and a kind of shock at the term. So the book comes out of trying to collect cases of retreat in the world where where people have moved in tandem and you know with risk with vulnerability with land-based relations in a kind of understanding of what what they're living with rather than against it i suppose rather than building a seawall rather than building up higher rather than blaming the government rather than you know uh, the list, the list is long, or rather than advocating for a pure relocation, which is is usually hard on communities' cohesiveness, like an ability for a community to stay together socially, spiritually. So the word resilience actually is very similar to that word desertification we were talking about. It's like this word that just sort of took over, mm. right? I might argue that retreat is a more resilient strategy. It's a stronger form of adaptation to recognize the risk you live with. And I love that you keep saying symptom. The symptom, this, and it's, it's reminding me of how I think of, of where our planet is in terms of its sickness. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. our planet is sick and we call it climate change, but that, that's one label. I mean, the, we know that the planet's kind of in, a, in an unhealthy state and, and it feels like a lot of projects like, let's say like tree planting or Build Back Better, they're trying to solve something that's very systemic. So they're, they're using very singular solutions for systemic problems. And when that happens in medicine, it's an ill alignment. I mean, it's like if you go to your doctor and you say, I'm sick. And then the doctor says, well, you have this, you know, you kind of want to say, is there a pill for that? Like, when am I going to get better? Can we solve this? And some sicknesses can be solved with taking a certain treatment or a certain course of medication. Right. But if you go to your doctor and she says, you have heart disease, you can't take a pill for it. You can't, take a shot. You can't go. Get, the, the cure, the so-called treatment is you got to exercise more. You got to stress less. You got to get outside. You might want to change jobs. You have to lose some weight, whatever it is, right? No red meat. There's, I don't know what the list is, but it's, 
it's a list that changes behavior. And the only reason to do it is to live longer. You don't have to do any of those things. You could choose not to, and then you'll just live shorter. And so that's the difference between being chronically sick and episodically sick, right? Where it just like, it comes and it goes. Like, so if you're chronically sick, you can't just throw a solution at it. And our planet is chronically sick, not it's not a singular sickness it has that we can solve. It's got a chronic sickness. And so we have to treat it. And like you're saying, there are these symptoms that come up and they should be cues where, where we learn to change our relationship with that symptom somehow. I don't know if my analogy is resonating with yeah. you, but I'm, I'm kind of feeling good about it right now. <laughs> yeah. No, it really does. And in mainstream discourses, there's a lot of language around fighting against climate change so as to be able to like continue the status quo. And I, I think I'm more interested in reframing the response, not as fighting against it, but mm. actually listening to climate change and what all of these symptoms are trying to tell us in terms of how we should change in order to realign ourselves with our extended bodies of the planet. But yeah, we are nearing the end of our conversation here. And I think the common denominator between the two main themes we discussed today is the need to really go beyond simplistic framings of what doing good means, all, all of these things to question. And I know our little portion on retreat really was just an appetizer to this whole other conversation that maybe we'll get to share in the future. But like, you know, planting trees sounds great. Building back better sounds great. But what happens if we could take on a more relational lens to understanding healing, healing lands and healing our communities? Mm. So as we wrap up here, I, I would love for you to share any cost to action you might have and any other offerings on what it could mean for people to center place-based relationships as we embark on our very diverse pathways towards healing ourselves and our communities. Well, I just think we need to get outside more. <laughs> so I would say get outside. Whatever it is you do, start a practice that gets you outside. Go for the same walk every day. Learn the names of the trees on your street. Figure out which berries are edible, which ones aren't. I mean, just stare at the sky at night if that's what you're into. But we have to reconnect with our planet in pretty... I want to say rather simple ways to know or to what to use your terms to listen to it. If we, we have to be open to the listening to know what our planet is up to. And I think we're typically under, under a lot of layers of, of noise and, and concrete and instability so much so that we're, we're quite, far away from from the land itself from the earth itself and from its systems so get outside is is my is my whenever i'm stuck i just go outside <laughs> What has been one of the most impactful books that you've read or a publication you follow? Right now, I'm reading a book called Sacred Economics, Money, Gift, and Society in the Age of Transition. And it is referenced by Robin Wall Kimmerer in her work on the service berry and the gift economy of the service berry as a plant that, that gives a lot. And so I started reading it. And so... I don't have so much to say about it yet because humbly I'm, I'm only on page 70 and it's a long book, but I'm enthralled and I think it should be in wider circulation. Mm. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? I garden. And I, I don't mean that in, in a horticultural manner or in a kind of leisure class way. 
I, I get outside and I try to communicate, collaborate, and nurture the plants around me. Mm. And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? My students and any student of any age, anywhere, who decides that more knowledge is is more engagement and more engagement gives you more power and we should all be students of life forevermore. So when, when you decide to take that step and just engage with others in uh, an intellectual generosity that we call education, then I'm inspired by that. Hmm. Well, Green Dreamer, we're coming to a close here, but to learn more and stay updated on Rosetta's writing and work, you can head to www.practicelandscape.com and we'll have more references from this conversation linked in our show notes as well at greendreamer.com. Rosetta, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an honor to have you here and just such an enriching and thought-provoking conversation. So I'm so grateful. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Keep dreaming green. I love your title. It's fun. And I think we all need to love and have a little more fun. I mean, we had a very heavy conversation, but really, if we can, if we can love each other a little more and we can love plants a little more and we can love the land a little more, then I think, I think we'll get there. This episode was made possible through the direct support of our listeners like you. To receive my personal reflections on these conversations, get access to our bonus live podcasts and gatherings, and support our show to continue, join us on Patreon today at greendreamer.com support. As a small independent show, we also greatly appreciate your five-star reviews and whenever you get the chance to share your favorite episodes. Our song featured today is Lose My Mind by Ruby My Dear. Our production manager is Tammy Gunn. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. And I'm your host, Kamea Jane. Thanks for tuning in and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.